0: Good afternoon, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL 232 1542 if you want to be part of the program. And I want to start today with something a little bit heavy. Um, and so you're you're going to have to forgive me, but I think this is the most important story of the day, more important than any of the raw politics going on, more important than any speculation about 2023 or 2024. This is the story that we have to start with. In September of 2001, multiple intelligence agencies in the United States were caught off guard when a handful of terrorists hijacked several planes crashed them into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and into a field in Pennsylvania. There were several signs throughout uh, the days and months leading up to the September 11th attacks that had the intelligence agencies been able to put all of those signs together They would have seen what was coming. We know this now after investigations into what happened, into how this massive terror attack could have happened on American soil. The problem is that government agencies were more committed to turf wars and protecting their own departments Than they were actually doing the jobs that they were supposed to do. Had the FBI, CIA, all these other departments understood what working together would mean, September 11th would have looked a lot different. We know that now, we know that in retrospect. And it's a lesson that the federal government and all those government bureaucracies should have learned. In the wake of that, we got the Department of Homeland Security, which then became the overseer to all of these government agencies. In an attempt to get them all to work together to have one single place for them to report to. It appears that the lesson has not been learned. The most important story of the day is a piece at the Washington Post. It is part of a long investigative series that they are doing. Today's piece is called Cause of Death. And it is a look at how the federal government has faltered on fighting the fentanyl crisis in the country. Cause of death, Washington faltered as fentanyl gripped America. That's the name of the piece. It's behind a paywall. If you don't have a Washington Post subscription, there are ways to access it without needing the subscription. But here's what you need to know. Here's one of the key parts from it. And this is, this is a massive piece. I can't go through the entire piece in just one show. But there are two very important parts here. And the first is what I'm leading with today. The Drug Enforcement Administration, the country's premier anti-narcotics agency, stumbled through a series of missteps as it confronted the biggest challenge in its 50-year history. The agency was slow to respond as Mexican cartels supplanted Chinese producers, creating a massive, illicit pharmaceutical industry that is now producing more fentanyl than ever. The Department of Homeland Security, whose agencies are responsible for detecting illegal drugs at the nation's borders, failed to ramp up scanning and inspection technology at official crossings, instead channeling $11 billion toward the construction of a border wall that does little to stop fentanyl traffickers. The White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, the executive branch office headed by the, quote, drug czar, and tasked with coordinating the government's response, spent years fending off elimination and struggled to create an effective strategy to combat the scourge. Its office lost its seat in the White House cabinet and remains sidelined. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is unable to track overdose deaths in real time. Its published data is a year behind, obscuring the picture of what is happening on the ground in 2022. The agency continues to count the death toll for 2021 in a provisional tally that seven months ago it calculated the overall number of drug overdoses at 107,622. Two-thirds of those overdoses were due to fentanyl. There is one federal system that collects both fatal and non-fatal overdose data in real time in several regions of the country, but the system, called ODMAP, is kept from public view. A database launched by the Drug Czar's, by the Drug Czar's office last week maps some non-fatal overdoses which can highlight regions where deaths are likely to follow. Without comprehensive data, the federal government is driving blind. In other words, the DEA, the DHS, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, the CDC, all of these agencies are operating separately of each other. There is no coordinated strategy here. And the fight to combat the fentanyl epidemic is one that the United States is losing. Not only that, but this is a nonpartisan issue. This is not the failure of Joe Biden. This is not the failure of Donald Trump. This is a failure of the Bush administration, Obama administration, Trump administration, and Biden administration. It is without a doubt... The fault of Barack Obama and Joe Biden, whose administrations did not take seriously the immigration problem at the border of the United States. It left gaps in the system where people could cross over carrying drugs like fentanyl into the United States. The Bush administration paid very little attention to what at the time were screaming signs about the upcoming opioid epidemic when the United States finally started cracking down on the opioid epidemic, it left a gap in the black market, which was then filled by the much cheaper to produce fentanyl that the Mexican drug cartels then supplanted the Chinese importers because they could do it cheaply just across the border and bring it in. It was a failure of the Trump administration to focus on solely the wall and not on technologies and checkpoints that would check passenger and commercial vehicles that were transporting it over the border. Every presidential administration since the turn of the century has gotten it wrong. And because of that, we are seeing hundreds of thousands of drug overdoses a lot of them, fentanyl. Here's what a lot of people don't quite understand about fentanyl yet. It is extremely cheap to produce. It's all synthetic. And it's being produced, it's being stored, and it's being sent across the border. The cartels are renting Airbnbs to store the drugs in until they can move them from one place to the next. Like I said, they are driving them over the border in passenger and commercial vehicles at checkpoints where there is no technology or no manpower and personnel to scan and find any drugs coming across. The focus on the border wall was partially correct because one of the things that ends up happening is that the cartel's coyotes will go through and they will take large numbers of illegal immigrants and carry them along the border and carry them past the border. And so uh, Border Patrol will chase after those illegal immigrants. But at the same time, once Border Patrol is on the trail of those illegal immigrants, another group of drug traffickers are also crossing the border illegally carrying those drugs. But that's not where the bulk of the drugs are coming from. The bulk are coming over simple roads. A top-down systemic failure in the United States by the United States government to take control of the problem. And as a result, America is losing in the war on fentanyl, if you want to call it a war on fentanyl. We have our war on drugs. We constantly have wars on very different on, on various nouns, and they rarely ever work. But this crisis is one that the United States needs to do a better job of fighting. 232-1542, if you want to call in and be part of the conversation, you can also send a message through the KPL app chat. When we come back, more on this. Like I said, it's the most important story of the day, and it's a systemic failure of the government we'll have more on that here on the Joe Cunningham show News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 2321542 if you want to be part of the conversation. Um so the Bush administration largely largely missed the growing opioid epidemic, but fentanyl started becoming a problem in the US under barack obama and during his administration there were two significant cuts to programs that could have helped better combat this the first was the cutting of the arrestee drug abuse monitoring program which gathered urine samples from recent offenders the program which was run by the white house drug czar was scuttled in 2013 by budget cuts in 2011 The Drug Abuse Warning Network, which collected drug use and overdose data from hospitals and emergency responders, was eliminated. The government brought back a version of that in 2018, but by then the fentanyl crisis was well underway. So this really dates back, you know, three presidential administrations ago. Because it was ignored by the Bush administration. And then because the Obama administration ignored the border, ignored the opioid crisis until it was too late and scuttled these two programs, we actually started losing tools as a country. And then when it came time for the Trump administration, the Trump administration refused to really acknowledge that the fentanyl problem was coming more from Mexico than China. In fact, in 2017, the Department of Justice was touting convictions and, uh, and cases against drug importers from China that were bringing fentanyl in. The problem is that those were cases that were dating back to 2013, 2014, 2015, And by 2017, the Mexican drug cartels had actually really done a a pretty effective job of replacing Chinese importers as the primary source of fentanyl in the United States. It wasn't until 2018 that the Trump administration started acknowledging the rise of fentanyl coming from Mexico, and Donald Trump did sign an executive order that would provide the technology and personnel at checkpoints along the border. The problem is The funding never went there, and the focus was largely, like I said, on the wall. And now we have Joe Biden, who has largely ignored the immigration crisis at the border. More and more people coming through, more and more gotaways who are escaping the border patrol. And the Biden administration is really refusing to acknowledge that there is any such crisis at the border. And it's allowing for more and more of these drugs to come through. There was an arrest a few days ago, on, on, on December 6th. This is from Bill Malugin at Fox News. Uh, CPB officers at the port of entry at Nogales, Arizona, made yet another enormous fentanyl bus seizing 440,000 fentanyl pills hidden in the seats of a smuggler's vehicle. The Nagala's area continues to see massive fentanyl seizures, typically multiple times per week, but that's just one area. There are multiple areas along the border where the drugs are still coming through. At this point, fentanyl overdose stories are becoming more and more frequent. We have here at kpel965.com... We have an entire list of fentanyl overdoses and fentanyl arrests that we've been tracking. We've covered those stories. We've seen them locally. Chances are some of you listening, either directly or indirectly, know someone or know of someone who has overdosed from fentanyl. It is becoming a major issue in the United States, even here locally. It's been a big issue for a while now, but it's becoming so pervasive that you're starting to find a lot more people who in some way are affected by it. And this is one of the reasons why Donald Trump was able to happen in the first place. The very government agencies that are there supposed to protect us, supposed to stop these things, supposed to make these uh, make these the top priorities to protect the people of the United States. Those agencies aren't doing anything. And so voters turn to outsiders, people outside of Washington, D.C., people outside of the federal government and look for them to come in and change things. And the problem is the Washington swamp, which really is a thing that does exist, moves so slowly with or without a kick in the behind that none of those changes, even from outsiders, can really become enacted. The United States federal government is in desperate need once again of reform. Federal agencies need to be able to talk to each other. They need to be able to work together on crises like the fentanyl epidemic in the United States. Because we are fast approaching the point where Narcan in schools is not just something you see every now and then. It's going to become a regular feature in schools just like a fire extinguisher and a defibrillator. This is a major issue, and we need a government that will fight it. 232-1542, we're going to take our bottom of the hour news break. When we come back, again, your messages, your calls, and some speculation about 2024. There's a name being tossed around. I want to talk to you about that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232 1542. If you want to be part of the conversation, you can also send a message through the KPL app chat or reach me on Twitter at Joe P Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, and of course, check out the show notes at Joe Cunningham Show. So there's a name getting tossed around. In the 2024 race. Tim Scott, Senator from South Carolina, first black Senator from South Carolina. Uh, He is a brilliant Senator. He's one of my favorites in Washington, DC. Uh, And he, he apparently has a lot of fans among his colleagues. Uh, This from, from Politico. Joni Ernst is quote, very excited about a potential Tim Scott presidential run. John Cornyn would, quote, advise him to go for it. And John Barrasso says, quote, it doesn't get any better than Tim Scott. Even Lindsey Graham says that Scott would bring something to the table one day and that he wants to wait and see what Tim does before he makes any endorsements. Scott is, quote, increasing in national prominence and within the party, said Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican of North Carolina. I want to see what the first quarter shapes up to be in terms of people. Anyone who is serious about it is probably going to make a decision by the end of April. Having somebody like Tim in the mix is positive for Republicans. Now, there's a couple reasons why Republicans would want Tim Scott. First of all, having a black man as a candidate in your presidential primary does look good when put up against the identity politics of the Democrats constantly calling Republicans racist. But even beyond the identity aspects, part of it, Tim Scott's got an incredible record. He has put forward very good legislation. Not all of it has gotten through. In fact, uh, there was good police reform uh, legislation that he put forward in the wake of a lot of the, uh, the George Floyd protests and things like that. Very good criminal justice reform he put forward. And the Democrats blocked it because they didn't want the Republican Party to have a win before the 2020 election. That is undeniably true. A lot of the things Democrats called for were in Scott's bill. Now, all of that said, I really don't want Tim Scott to run for president. And there's two reasons why. The first is that I think Tim Scott would be wasted in a presidential primary. I would rather see him stay in the Senate and work with Senate Republicans and perhaps get into some leadership role in the Republican caucus in the Senate. I think Scott has potential as a vice presidential candidate, but I don't want him to be dragged down into the mud in a presidential primary, especially one Like we're going to see in 2024 with Donald Trump running and a bunch of other Republicans looking at the job. The other reason kind of relates to that. I think the Republican Party has moved to a point beyond nominating U.S. Senators. In 2016, we had a bunch of senators who all ran and they did not do great. Ted Cruz lasted the longest, but even he could not withstand fighting down in the pig pen with Donald Trump. The other Senate candidate, the other senators who were who ran as nominees in 2016 did not fare nearly as well as Trump uh, as, as Cruz did. I don't think the Republican base wants senators and it's not that the senators who run are career politicians but there are a few things that look more stuffy and formal than a U.S. senator if you get what I'm saying you, you picture a U.S. senator you put you picture an older politician type and there's just that connotation that comes with the term with the title senator I don't think the Republican Party The Republican Party's voters, in particular, are really looking for a senator to take that job. We've had those uh, candidates run. They didn't do so hot recently. The most success the Republican Party has had is with governors, with the exception of Donald Trump. But Like I said in the last segment, when the federal government and the established systems of both parties continue to fail time after time, you look to the outside, and that's how Donald Trump becomes a thing. If Donald Trump is not destined to regain the throne of America, chances are you're looking at a governor to run for and win that nomination. That's why everyone's looking at Ron DeSantis. That's why there's all this talk about Larry Hogan and Chris Sununu and all these other governors from around the country. A lot of them mealy-mouthed, you know, center-right kind of moderate governors. But for the most part, Ron DeSantis does dominate that conversation, and I think fairly so. Tim Scott would be a great candidate, but Tim Scott is a senator, and I just do not think that's what voters are looking for right now. They're looking for somebody who has a track record as an executive of a state, who has a proven means of winning, fighting the battles voters care about, winning getting people to his side, and, of course, winning. That's what they're looking for. And you see that exemplified in Ron DeSantis. You have people saying they want Brian Kemp of Georgia to run. I don't think Kemp is, but you never know. But a Ted Cruz or a Rand Paul, or a Marco Rubio, even a Tim Scott, they don't have a list of accomplishments outside the legislative branch. They can talk a great conservative game. They can have ideas, but they do not have the experience of running a state. They do not have the experience within the executive branch to be able to do that. And so I don't think the american public the republic ba- the republican base in particular is going to find themselves all that excited over a us senator now i could be wrong on that but given the way people talk given the way people have behaved it sure seems like more than rhetoric is needed and more than rhetoric is what's being called for by the voters that's a problem that the democrats have right now as well. The only governor who has experience surviving in tight electoral campaigns against Republicans is Gavin Newsom. And there's no way on God's green earth that the Democratic Party is going to be able to get to Gavin Newsom with as bloody a primaries he's going to have to go through. And he may get the nomination, but the American public is not going to vote for him to be president. They just are not. Most Americans outside of California really don't like California. They see California as, frankly, a nutty place. And why wouldn't they? But there's no other chief executive of a state that really has a a record of accomplishments in their state that would make him seem like a good idea for the Democratic voters. And so some of them may try to run in 2024 if Biden decides not to. If they wait until 2028, God knows what's going to happen then. But within, within the Democratic Party, within the Democratic potential candidate list, you also have Pete Buttigieg, who is the uh Director or the the transportation secretary for Joe Biden, who goes missing for months at a time and nobody really hears about. Oh, and by the way, he's going on all these trips to talk about environmentalism and how we need to save the environment. The problem is he's taken about 18 private jet trips to do so. You have Kamala Harris, who is the only person in the country who was able to be more unpopular than both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And really has no record of accomplishment as a senator or as vice president of the United States. Who else from the Biden administration? Michelle Obama, as, as much as people talk about it, Michelle Obama is not going to run. She hated being in the White House the first time. She's not going to run to actually be a leader, the leader of the country. She does not want it. They would have to give up a very lavish Hollywood lifestyle in order to do that again. I'm just not sure who the Democrats would have if Joe Biden doesn't run or if they have to wait until 2028. And by that point, if they have to wait until 2028, let's assume that Joe Biden wins in 2024. Let's assume that if they if the Democrats have to wait until 2028 because Joe Biden has been there for eight years, it's almost impossible to get a third term. From the same party. It is almost impossible. So it wouldn't really benefit them then. The best chance to have a good 2028 is to get somebody to replace Biden now. But going back to my original point, I'm just not sure. That the Republican voters are looking for a senator right now. All right, let's take a quick. Phone call before we go to the break. We've got Bill on the line. Bill, how are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing good. What you got?
1: Yeah, uh, I am just calling because I found it interesting that as you were talking about the potential uh, for uh, Tim Scott to run, mm-hmm. you know, and we and we uh, all value our, our pride ourselves not to be, uh, you know, identity politicians politics oriented. The mm-hmm. first thing you, yeah, the first thing you said was that he's black. Yeah. And and you can go back and listen to the context, if you want to, but that's, a, that's the first thing you said.
0: Oh, and that was on purpose. That was on purpose because the Republican. I, uh,
1: yeah. Well, it, it, my, of course it was on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just find it kind of odd, you know, that Biden checks all the boxes. I mean, he's got the, uh, LGBTQ guy who's, who's a, a Larson, a, expert or whatever. Uh, Yeah. I mean, Um, I think, uh, I don't know. it, It just sounded kind of funny to me coming from you. The first thing you said is he's black. Well, and, and again, like I said,
0: that was on purpose. The reason, the reason I said that is that Republicans are going to be looking strategically at the best path to win. And that's going to come up because the Republicans are looking, especially after Georgia right now, um, one of the things the Republicans are really kind of bitter about right now is that they didn't do enough to go after Black voters in Georgia, and so they're going to be looking at twenty twenty four. Okay, how can we check off these diversity boxes? And they're going to say, "Well, Tim Scott's a Black guy out of South Carolina. That's you know the the Democrats have now moved their first in the nation primary to South Carolina for that
1: reason." Mm-hmm. Okay, so so what's the difference between you saying it and uh, whoever Biden saying it? Well, I'm I'm not
0: you know? saying it because it's my personal view. I'm saying that because I know that's how the Republican Party is going to look at it.
1: That's how that's how. Yeah, it, it's true. There you go. Yeah. I mean, everybody looks at it. Yes. You know. Okay. Well, I just you know I mean you could have started off. By saying, you know, how accomplished he is actually uh, as a senator in South Carolina, because I think he is, you know. Oh, anyway.
0: Yeah. I, and, I just, I, and, and Bill, I, kind of I of OK, thank Thank you very much. And I get what you're saying. And I understand completely. And like I said, it was on purpose because I know that's how the Republican Party is going to look at it. Tim Scott is a very accomplished senator and he is absolutely somebody who would qualify for the office. But at the same time, I don't want him to because I want him to stay in the Senate. I want him to continue to be a good voice for Republicans in the Senate. Bill, thank you very much for the call. We've got to go ahead and take a break. We've got a couple minutes when we get back. Your call is 232-1542 if you want to be part of the program. You can also send a message through the KPL app chat. That and more here on The Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5. KPEL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. Um, You can also send a message through the KPEL app chat. So Mississippi State uh, football head coach Mike Leach is currently hospitalized in Mississippi. Uh, Apparently had a heart attack and and is in critical condition right now. Uh, The college football world is almost uniformly praying for him. He is one of, he's known as one of the nicest. His, his kindness is just infectious. Nick Saban said, Um, but he is also, if you've ever watched him get interviewed, he is just one of the most down to earth and entertaining coaches that there is. And there is, uh, there is no end to the number of clips you can find about Mike Leach Uh, And the 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 things that he says, which are funny, but are not like super crazy and to the point where reporters will now ask him, uh, you know, what's your favorite Halloween candy or uh, what? How do you prefer your coffee or, you know, what are your thoughts on marriage? He had a brilliant monologue about uh, about getting married that that a reporter uh, after a game, an SEC reporter actually asked him about. And uh, he said that he advised the the reporter, who's a woman, and, and her, her fiance to just elope because uh, the people in their lives would be going crazy asking questions and things like that. It's just he's just tremendously entertaining. And last night it was reported that he was hospitalized uh, overnight, found out he was in critical condition. And the Clarion Ledger uh, in Mississippi is reporting that it was a heart attack. And there are even reports that uh, there's brain seizures as well involved in this. So uh, very tough situation. For Mississippi State football coach Mike Leach uh, praying for the best for him uh, his defensive coordinator Zach Arnett will be leading the football program in his absence uh, the university announced that yesterday they do have a bowl game on January 2nd uh, they will be taking on Illinois and that will be uh, that will be an entertaining game it will be Hopefully, a game where that Leach will be able to at least watch. But uh, again, all best wishes wishes to Coach Leach as he recovers. Uh, in critical, he's in critical condition currently. Uh, before we get out of here for today, uh, real quick, just one more story I wanted to mention. There is a growing movement now on ending gender affirming care transgenderism in kids. I want to talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, uh, but there's a link on today's show notes uh, from a place called the free press. The headline is the beginning of the end of gender affirming care. I want to talk about that, but I want you guys to be thinking about that because we are in this stage of dare I say it transition where this one social movement is now giving way to a counter movement that we're seeing more and more aggressively from parents, from the medical Community and elsewhere. All right, that's it for me today. Twenty three hours until I return. You guys have a great day. Follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com, Slash Joe Cunningham Show. The show notes are referenced at Joe Cunningham Show. Talk to you guys again real soon. Shannon is offsides next here on News Talk ninety six point five.